was in the Valley of Elah, where David faced up against an enemy he had no chance to defeat. An enemy with an advantage in every category and in an undefeated record. Life's battles aren't always won by the person with the biggest spear. When David stepped forward to fight a giant, he wasn't trusting in a weapon you could see. Well, good morning and welcome to Northridge Church. Man, we're thrilled and pumped that you're here this morning. I want to welcome our campuses, those of you who are with us online, and all of our guests checking out Northridge Church. Thanks for being here and welcome. And last week, we started a brand new series we're calling Portraits of a King. And really, in this series, we're looking at the books of First and Second Samuel, and we're zooming into a person's life. His name is David. And in this series, we created a booklet. So if this is your first time here or in this series, make sure you grab one of those booklets to keep notes along the journey. But in week one, which was last week, we, we dove into the, one of the first significant moments in David's life where he was anointed the next king of Israel. God had rejected the first king. His name was Saul because of his disobedience. And we learned a little bit of what God looks at when he looks at all of us, when he's looking for a leader. He looks at our heart. And we learned that character, who we are, it trumps always. It always trumps our competence or what we do. We also learned that we all have weaknesses, but in spite of those weaknesses, God wants to and can use us. His power is made perfect in our weaknesses. And so this morning, we're going to continue in this series. We're going to look at maybe one of the most famous stories, maybe in all of the Bible. One of the stories, one of the most famous stories in King David's life, and it's found in 1 Samuel chapter 17. If you got your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn there, jump into your iPhone in the Bible app or your tablet. You can also watch on the screen. If you're using one of the Northridge Bibles, it's going to be on page 227, 227. And before we get to 1 Samuel chapter 17, we left David off at being anointed as the next king of Israel. That was the middle of chapter 16. And David is kind of in this weird period where he knows his future, but he doesn't get to live it out. He's anointed to be the next king of Israel, but he's in this waiting game to be, actually become the king. And building into chapter 17, Saul, the king, the existing king, actually brings David into his kingdom, not knowing he's going to be the next king. And he makes him this musician in an armor bearer of his, his office. And so we pick up the story in 1 Samuel chapter 17. It sets kind of the context for us. It says this. It says, Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Sukkot in Judah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle lines to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. And so here our, our scene is beginning to get set. And so the nation of Israel is at war with the nation called the Philistines. These are mortal enemies. You have a pagan nation in the Philistines and you have God's chosen nation in the Israelites. And they're opposite sides of the hill. There's a, the valley of Elah is in between them and they're lining up preparing for battle. And you have to understand something about the setting, where, where this is located. You see, Sukkot is about 14 miles from Bethlehem. Israel is defending their territory. If, they're to, if they are to lose this battle, it would be significant because this would give the Philistines access into the southern hills of Judah. And so this is a big deal. This location was a big deal for Israel. And so the scene continues. Verse 4, it says, A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out from the Philistine camp. 
His height was about six cubits in a span. That's about nine foot six. He had a bronze helmet on his head. He wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing about 5,000 shekels. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung around his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. And so every day, the armies line up on each side of the valley, getting ready for war, much like a movie we've seen before. And every day outsteps Goliath. And Goliath is this nine foot six giant champion. He's been bred to fight, to win the Philistines' battles. And so every day he steps out from the Philistine line and he issues this simple challenge. Israel, get your best soldier. Let's duke it out. Let's forget the blood and the guts of the battle. Let's solve it right here. Your best versus me, winner takes all. The problem is, is all of Israel is afraid of Goliath. I mean, it makes sense. He's nine foot six. He's a warrior. He's undefeated. His reputation goes before him. And so all of Israel is, is afraid. There is no champion in Israel. And interestingly enough, you know whose responsibility it was to fight this battle? It was the king's. When there was no champion, King Saul should have stepped in and said, I'll fight this battle. You want to know why? Because not only is Goliath defying the nation of Israel, he's defying their very God. And so it was Saul. It was the king's responsibility to step in and fight Goliath. But it gives us a little insight into where King Saul is. He's hiding in his tent. I mean, Israel's giant was Saul. The Bible refers to Saul being a head taller than every person in Israel. And so he's the giant of Israel. He's the king. He's the leader. It was his responsibility. It was his obligation to step into this battle. But he's hiding in his tent, scared to death. And so we're going to skip forward. I'm going to kind of, you know, spoiler alert, we're going to come to the end of the story. David steps in, verse 48. It says this, and the Philistines move closer to attack him. David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet him, reaching into his bag and taking out a stone. He slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank in his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. So the future king actually steps in for the existing king. And he fights the battle and he wins. Goliath falls down, down goes the giant. We've heard this story so many times, so let's just pray and let's get out of here, right? I mean, this is one of the most famous stories in the entire Bible. If you grew up in church, you've heard it before. If you come to church on a regular basis, you've heard it preached. You've heard it taught before. Even if you're, you don't have a church background, even if you're new to church, you've probably heard about David and Goliath where there is a sports illustration. Like, hey, it's an underdog. It's like David versus Goliath. We know the story. We've read it, heard it. But the thing about this story for all of us is when we read it, even including myself, is when I read this story, I mean, all of us, there's something innate in our DNA. God designed us this way. When we read a story like this, we all want to be David. 
We want to be the hero. We want to be the guy in the spotlight, the girl in the spotlight that wins the war and everybody chants our name. I mean, there's something about us that desires to be David. I mean, that's why we watch movies like Black Panther and Infinity Wars and Civil War and Wonder Woman, because there's something about us that just longs to be the superhero that saves the day, that rescues people. That's who we are, and we all want to be David. But here's what I'm afraid of. Most of us, we want to be in the spotlight, but we have no clue what it took to get there. We have no clue the amount of grind and work that David had to live out in his prior years to get to this moment. You see, my question this morning is, what led David to the point where he was willing to put his future on the line? And remember what his future is. He's anointed to be the next king of Israel. I mean, that's not a bad future. Like, how many wouldn't take that? And he puts it all on the line to fight a giant he probably won't defeat. What led him to this moment? I think what happens with the story of David and Goliath is we zoom so much into the battle that we miss out on a lot of great detail. We're so much looking, we look so much into David and Goliath in the actual battle that we miss what got David to this point in the first place. And that's what we're going to discover this morning because I believe God used a couple things in David's life to get him to fight Goliath. And I think it starts with what I like to call the preparation. The preparation. God prepared David to build up to this moment. And there's this Chinese military strategist, he's very well known in Eastern culture. His name is Shon Zhu. And this is what he says about every battle. He says, every battle is won before it's ever fought. Every battle that you face in life is won in the preparation and the planning stage, not the actual battle. But yet, in so many wars, in so many things, we zoom into the battle that we miss what actually won the war in the first place. And it's the same for David and Goliath. You see, most of us, we, we, we want to be David. We want the glory to be the champion. We want that. But here's what I'm afraid of. Most of us want to experience the glory, but we aren't willing to endure the grind. Most of us, we want the spotlight. We want the glory. We want to be the hero. But we have no clue what David did and what other people have grinded through and worked through to get to that glory. Let's just forget about spirituality for a second. This is just true in life. For all of us. I mean, most of us, we want a six-pack full of abs, or we want the beach body, but the reality is, is we're not willing to grind at 5 or 6 a.m. in the gym to get it. Most of us, we want to be the CEO, the boss, the leader of the company, but few of us are willing to grind at the bottom of the organization and work our way up to achieve that job. We just demand it. And I believe in our culture today, we've lost the value of the grind. Working out, you think of guys, some of the famous, most famous athletes. Think of Tom Brady. Sorry, all you Buffalo Bills fans. <laughs> I know that hurts. Think of like Tom Brady, Michael Jordan, Serena Williams. You think of the greatest athletes at their sport. And you know what we have? We have highlights of them throwing a game-winning pass, hitting a game-winning jumper, acing somebody to win the set. We see all these highlights, but what we fail to realize with all three of these athletes is they're the first person to show up at practice and the last person to leave because they grind it out and work it out to get to that spotlight. 
And that's what David did. And I'm going to show it to you because David grinded to get to this moment. Check it out in verse 12. It says this. It says, now David was the son of an Ephronite named Jesse, who was from Bethlehem in Judah. Jesse had eight sons. And in Saul's time, he was very old. Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to war. The firstborn was Eliab, the second Abinadad, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. And this gives us a little insight into David's grind to the battle. Because David was born, he's the youngest of eight sons. His, thir- his three oldest brothers, Eliab, Abinadad, and, and Shammah, they all go off to war to fight the battle because they're old enough. David isn't even old enough to fight in the battle yet. And you know what David is doing while this war, this battle is going on and they're gearing up for it? He's working two jobs. His first job is he's playing, he's a musician for King Saul. At his beck and call, he's got to come and play the harp for King Saul. And in between those moments, guess what he's doing? He's tending his father's sheep. He's a shepherd. And you want to talk about the most boring, stale, monotonous job in the world It was a shepherd. Now, this doesn't really translate in our American culture because I would bet money that absolutely zero people listening to this message are shepherds. But when we were, if you are, I would love to know it. (laughs) But when we were in Israel filming some of this footage for this series and our Christmas series, we got to hang out with a shepherd. We got to see what he, he, he did from day to day. And man, was it boring. I mean, the most exciting moments in his life was like watching flies circle his sheep. Or it might even got really exciting. You might hear like a, bah. Like, you talk about monotony. You talk about boring. Remember, that's what David was. And you know what? God used David as a shepherd, a boring, stale shepherd, to get him ready for the greatest battle he would ever face. He used the boring and the mundane in his life to lead him to this place. Let me show it to you. Let me prove it to you. Because when David was convincing Saul that he should fight the battle, guess what he goes back to? Verse 34, he says, but David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off the sheep from the flock, I went after it. I struck it and I rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized its its hair, struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and bear. The uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. You know what David's, his, his whole idea for convincing Saul to let him go fight? He looks at Saul and he's like, hey, you don't understand, Saul. I was a shepherd. Oh, okay, David, cool. Yeah, let's let us, you're a shepherd, cool. Let's let you go fight the battle. No, Saul, you don't understand. I'm a shepherd. I'm a shepherd. And there was a couple occasions where a lion or a bear, they came after my sheep. And guess where those lions and those bears are? They're six feet under. And you see that giant? He'll be in the same place. Because I was a shepherd. And yeah, it might have been boring. It might have been monotonous. And it might have been mundane. But guess what? God used it in my life. And he used it in a great way. And now I'm ready to fight this battle. And I think we can relate to David's day job. Because we feel that about our own life. It's stale. It's monotonous. It's boring. I mean, we wake up and we clock in. And we clock out. We go home. We go to sleep and we do the same thing over and over again. 
We wake up and we're with our kids at home. We fold laundry, we cook dinner, we change diapers, and we do it all over again. I think a lot of us can relate to the shepherd because that's how we feel about our lives. That's how sometimes I feel about my own life. I mean, I wake up every day around 6 a.m. I feed the kids breakfast while they're screaming. I go to work. I come back home at 6. I change poopy diaper after poopy diaper. I feed the kids dinner with my wife. We give them baths. We put them in bed. I collapse in bed because I'm exhausted. And guess what happens? I do it again the next day. And it can feel monotonous, and it can feel boring, and it can feel stale. And I think a lot of us, we can relate to that, because that's how we feel about our circumstances in our life right now. But let me tell you something. God uses the mundane to prepare us for the mission. God uses the ordinary, seemingly insignificant in our life to get us ready for the mission. And I don't want us to miss that. Some of us are caught up in mundane right now, but we got to choose to allow to use those moments in our life to say, God, I know you're leading me somewhere. Now, I'm not promising you you're going to find Goliath in your life and, 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 and destroy him. Like, that's not what I'm promising. I, the mundane might be your mission. Staying home with your kids might be the mission God has for you. But every, where you are right now, God's using it for your future, whatever that might be. And he did it in David's life. He prepared him for the battle. That's what got David here. But the second thing I think God used is what I like to call the opposition. The opposition. You see, if, you're, if you really want to follow Jesus, and you're genuine about that belief in following Jesus, I promise you, you will face opposition. And opposition, I believe God uses opposition in our life, and we see it in David's life, to really see how serious we are about following God. God weeds out a bunch of people by just sending them a little bit of opposition and they quit. And David faced opposition and it came in two forms in his life right in this context. The first one, it came from people. It came from people. And, and oftentimes when we think about opposition to obeying God, we think of people who oppose God. We think of people who don't want to have anything to do with God. But do you realize that the people of God can be the greatest obstacle to the mission of God? And that was true in David's life. The people, the Christians in your sphere of influence at some times in your life can be the greatest obstacle to what God's calling you to. And that was true about David's life. He encountered two waves of opposition from people. And it wasn't people distant from him. It wasn't people who didn't like God. It was people closest in his life. It was friendly fire. First, it was his brother. Verse 28, it says this. It says, when Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and asked, why have you come down here? And whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I mean, he mocks the job that God used to prepare him for this moment. I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. And you came down only to watch the battle. And here David is, he's asking questions about what happens to the man who fights Goliath? What's he going to get? And his brother interrupts him and he says, David, dude, you're just so cocky. You're so conceited. Like you just came here to watch the battle, David. Like go tend the sheep, bro. Take care of those little sheep that you're taking care of. The very thing that God was using to prepare David for this moment is brother mocks. And here it is, his own brother. His own brother pushing against the calling that God has in his life. And this wasn't the only spot David experienced it. But you have to understand that Eliab, this is, remember, this is the oldest son. And probably what's going on here is a little bit of jealousy. You see, Eliab, 
a chapter before when, when God was looking for the next king of Israel, Eliab, being the oldest, probably thought it was going to be him. In a chapter before, he had to watch his youngest, the youngest, be anointed the next king of Israel. And so probably what's happening here is, is Eliab is jealous of David's future, and so he's taking it out on him. Some of us have been there before. But it wasn't just his brother, it was the leader of the entire nation, Saul. Verse 33, it says this, Saul replied, you are not able to go out against the, this Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man and he has been a warrior from his youth. Saul said to David, listen, David, I know your heart's in the right spot, man, but you're just too young. You're not even old enough to be in the army, David. And what he said was true. It was. I mean, it was accurate. But here's this wave of opposition. You ever been told that you're too young? Teenager? College student? You ever been told you're too young to do something significant for God? I've been there. I've been told I'm too young to lead a church. 32 years old, is, you, you got you to get a little bit older. True. And we've been there before. Man, I've been told I've been too short to play college basketball. I've been told all throughout my life I've felt opposition pushing against the very thing that God was leading me to. And I know there's some youngsters in the room, some, some middle schoolers, some high schoolers, some college students, that they're trying to do something significant for God. And the entire church is saying, just wait till you get a little bit older. And there's an age crisis in the church because we wonder why people, kids walk away from God. It's because when they're young, we tell them they can't do anything significant for God. This is what the Bible says about youth. This is Paul to a young pastor who's trying to lead the early church movement. This is Paul to Timothy. He says, don't let anybody look down on you because you are young. But set an example for believers in speech, in conduct, in faith, in pure and in purity. Man, if you're a youngster here today, don't ever let anybody say you're too young to do something significant for God. And as parents... As small group leaders, we should push our youngsters to do something significant for God. We should motivate them. We should challenge them. And we have to get to this place. I think a lot of youngsters, here's what we do. Someone tells us we're too young. And you know what we do? We tell them they're out of touch. They don't get it. And that's not the right response. You know what the Bible says to Tim? What Paul said to Timothy, he says, when people tell you you're too young, prove them wrong. Set the example in how you live your life in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. That's how we live out as young, a young generation moving for God as we say, hey, you might say I'm too young, but watch me live a godly life. And here's where we have to get to. All of us have to get to this place where we don't let someone's no keep you from listening to God's go. We have to get to this place where we don't allow the no's and the negativity to keep us from listening to God's go. Now let's pause here for a moment because I want to tell you what I'm not saying in this point. I'm not giving you excuse now to go and, and, and pretend God is calling you to something that all the spiritual people in your life and all the people in your community group are saying, I don't think that's wise. I'm not giving you an excuse not to listen to godly counsel, but at the end of the day, the voice that needs to be loudest in our lives is God's voice. And we can't allow the critics and the negativity to keep us from God's calling in our lives. You see, David was just trying to be obedient. And the people in his life were pushing him away from the obedience to God. And here's what I've found to be true about when it comes in my life to being obedient to God. I mean, that's what we're really all after. We're trying to be obedient to God's word and his calling on our life. And here's the truth about obedience to God. 
The first thing I think we have to understand is it often doesn't make sense to us personally. When God calls us to something, he doesn't always give us all the answers. He doesn't always lead us to the perfect direction. I mean, think of Abram. God came to Abram and he said, hey, I want you to go to a land that I'm not going to show you. Sweet, God. Sounds awesome. It's like when your GPS takes you to like a river that they want you to drive through. And the truth is, is when God calls us to something, sometimes it doesn't make sense to us. We have questions, we have concerns, we have doubts, but that's where faith comes in. That's where faith is, is taking a leap of faith and trusting God, even if you don't have all the answers. The second thing about obedience to God, it doesn't make sense to me sometimes, and it often, often people around me won't understand. Often people won't understand what God is calling me to. And let me give you some examples of this. You see, it doesn't make sense to us sometimes, and it doesn't make sense to the people around us not to have sex before we're married. I mean, that just doesn't make sense to our culture, but guess what? God's called us to live in obedience. You know what doesn't make sense to our culture today? Living on 90% of your salary and giving 10% back to the church. That doesn't make sense. It do like there's concerns there, God. You know what doesn't make sense is, is saying no to certain TV shows because they're raunchy, because you wanna be obedient to God. You know what doesn't make sense? Foster care and adoption doesn't make sense. To allow someone who you don't know into your home because the gospel, you're living out the gospel, that doesn't make sense to us. You know, it doesn't make sense racial reconciliation where we love people who are different than us because the gospel unites us all together. But at the end of the day, the church has got to rise up and say, I'm going to be obedient to God, even if it doesn't make sense. Even if I don't understand it, even if the people around me are like, you're crazy. Yeah, I'm crazy for Jesus. That's right. Amen. Sometimes when God calls you to something, you're just going to have to buck up, not have all the answers. People are going to tell you you're crazy and you just got to go for it. You got to take a leap of faith, just like David did. Because all the people around him, even the people closest to him said, hey, David, you're too young. Go back to the sheep. But David encountered a second wave of opposition. The first one was from people. The second one from, was from a four-letter word that is very powerful in our life. It's called fear. Fear. 1 Samuel 17, 24, it says this. It says, when the Israelites saw the man, that's Goliath, they all fled from him in great fear. And we've all dealt with fear before. And I can promise you one thing. When David faced Goliath, he was afraid. How could he not be? I mean, you're standing at a champion, a nine foot six warrior from birth. And you've never fought a battle in your life. You can bet your money David was afraid and all of Israel was afraid. And we've all experienced fear before when it comes to obeying God. And here's the reality of fear is it gives you two options when it comes to your faith. You have two options when you feel afraid. Fear can either paralyze or propel your faith. That, those are your two options. When you feel afraid, when God calls you to something big and your nerves start to rise and you have concerns and you have doubts, you have a choice. I can stay where I am. That's what the entire nation of Israel did in this story. All of them were afraid and guess what? No one stepped up to fight Goliath. David was afraid, but yet his fear motivated, it propelled, it led him in his faith. So the question is, is how did David overcome his fear? Because, man, I think all of us, all of us have pretty much the same fear when it comes to following God. It all kind of sums up in this one fear. We're afraid to fail. 
We're afraid to mess it up. I mean, here's what, here's what, here's what I struggle with. Here's, here's my fear is, okay, God, if you lead me against Goliath, what happens when I step into the field of battle and I go to fight Goliath and I don't win? What happens when I, I go ahead and I'm like, all right, Goliath, bring it on. I'm stepping out in the name of Jesus. And Goliath's spear goes through me and I'm the one laying on the ground. I think we're all afraid of that. God, what happens when I, I don't know all the words to say or the right answers to all the questions? God, what happens when I say yes to you and I leave my past behind and I leave the drugs behind, but then somewhere along the way I relapse and all of my lost friends say, I told you, you hypocrite. What happens then when I blow it, God? See, I think a lot of us are afraid of that. And how do you overcome that fear? How do you overcome the fact that you're going to fail? See, I think David was afraid of losing to Goliath, but here's how I think he overcame it. You see, overcoming fear involves surrendering the outcome. Overcoming fear involves surrendering, surrendering the outcome. You see, David knew one truth, and I think this is a truth that in, in the storms of life, in the hearts, in the battles of life, we have to learn. David recognized that if he fought Goliath alone, he was going to lose every single time. He had no shot to beat this giant. David knew that God had to go with him and before him, and, and he had to lead him. And he knew if God was there, he could not fail, even if Goliath beat him. And I, I think we have to get to this point in our, in our walk with God where we just let go of the results, where we let go of the outcome, because David realized this battle wasn't his to win. In fact, this is what he says to the Philistine in the midst of the battle. He says this, David said to the Philistine, <clears throat> you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. This day the Lord will deliver you into the hands and I will strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. David didn't say, hey, and the whole world's gonna watch how awesome I am. No, he said, you know what's gonna happen today, Goliath? Everybody at this battle is gonna recognize that God is real and watch him do what only he can do. All those gathered here will know that it's not by sword or by spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into all of our hands. Now, what if we faced our battles like that? We wouldn't have to be afraid because the results in our, aren't in our hands. I mean, what that does is it takes the pressure off all of us. It says, hey, I don't have to be perfect because Jesus is. I don't have to go to the battle alone because God's right there with me no matter what happens. And because David was prepared, because David was a shepherd prepared for this moment, because he pressed through the opposition, he got to watch a giant fall at his feet. Down goes the champ. And man, in this story, we, we get jazzed and we're like, this is an amazing story. But I want us to give, a, I want to give us a fresh take of what we can take home based off of this story. Because I think there's some things that can change today in our lives that will help us become more like the hero of the story. I think the first thing we have to learn is we have to learn to redeem the mundane. We have to learn to redeem the mundane. Because we all have mundane moments in our life. 
We all have jobs we don't like and we can't stand going to. We all have moments in our family and taking care of the kids and in retirement and in college and in our classroom that are just monotonous and stale. And we have to learn to redeem those moments. Do you know what most of us do? We just complain about them. We complain about the job. We complain about, man, the season our kids are in. We complain about retirement. We complain about our teachers in our classroom. We complain about our college courses. And you know what? That, that does no good. But you know what I believe David did when he was a shepherd? I believe he said, you know what, God, I, you have me here as a shepherd watching sheep. And you know what? I'm going to become the best shepherd I can, not to be amazing, but to bring you glory. You see, we have to learn to bring glory in, to God in every season, in every circumstance, and where God has us right now. You want to know something interesting? What did David kill Goliath with? A sling. Do you know where he got most of his practice with the sling? Watching sheep. Because he redeemed his time. He got good throwing that sling around. God was using it. You see, God uses every day as an opportunity. God uses every moment, every second as an opportunity. And we have to learn in those stale, boring moments of our life, instead of complaining about them, instead of wishing them away, instead of hoping we had a new job or we could transfer to a different college, what if we just said, God, I'm going to bring you glory with my life right now, right here. Can you imagine what would change? This is, God gives us insight into his word of how we do that. Ephesians 5, it says this. It says, be very careful then how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise. And here's how we redeem the mundane. We make the most of every opportunity. You see, when you sit in your cubicle at work, God has a job for you there through the conversations you have, from the times you pick up your phone, from the lunch that you eat, you see, when you go to your classroom and your college dorm, you go to your neighborhood and hang out with other kids, God has an opportunity for you to bring him glory. And that won't change, no matter if you like your job or not. It won't change if you're happy or not. We have to learn that in the mundane, God prepares us and uses us, and we can bring him glory in that. To learn to redeem the mundane. I think, secondly, we have to learn to overcome the opposition to overcome the opposition. If you're here this morning and, and, and you really are genuine about following Jesus, I mean, your desires, I want to be obedient to God. I, I'm, just gonna, I'm not going to sugarcoat it for you. I'm going to just tell you the truth. There will be opposition. And it will come in every nook and cranny of your life. It will start with the enemy. The Bible calls him a lion that's waiting to, to just strike and kill and destroy you and your marriage and everything you hold dearly to. It'll come from the people you think you, it will come from the people you least likely expect it to. It will come from friendly fire, from Christians in your life. It will come from your family. It will come from everywhere in all areas of your life. Opposition will come when you want to follow Jesus. He didn't say it was going to be easy. Most of us, the moment it gets hard, we bail. Like, God, you never said this was going to be hard. Actually, he did. You just weren't listening. James says there will be trials and tribulations in life. And you know what part of those trials and tribulations is? It's the enemy trying to get you off track. And just like David, we have to learn to press through, to fight through the people in our life and our own insecurities and our own fears. 
We have to learn to overcome the opposition. And here's what I would say to you. Don't allow the critics to keep you from your calling. Don't allow the negativity, don't allow the voices that are loudest in your life that tell you you're not doing it right, that you can't do it. Don't allow those critics to keep you from what God's calling you to. You see, all of us, we have critics in life. Critics in what we do for a living, critics on all kinds of things. Man, I have critics in my life. I have people who tell me I'm too young to lead a church. I've got people who tell me I don't dress the right way. My kids don't dress the right way. I've got people who tell me I don't preach the right way. I've got critics. We all have them. And I'm telling you, God is like refining me in this area. Because I used to just do one of two things. I used to just completely ignore the critics. You're stupid. Like you, you're out of touch. You don't get it. And I don't think that's a good response. And you know what I used to, another thing I used to do, I used to focus on the critics. And God is teaching me in this season of life that I'm always gonna have critics. And sometimes we have to learn to listen to those critics. Because I think God uses critics in our life to refine us, to, to open us up to some blind spots in our own life. But remind you, I'm not saying to focus on your critics. I'm saying to hear them, listen to them. Because the other thing that I do oftentimes is I focus on my critics. Maybe you can relate to this. I can talk to 10 people and nine of them can tell me that I'm doing a great job. But if one person tells me I stink, I'm gonna focus on that one person. It's gonna haunt me, it's gonna consume me, it's gonna eat me up, I'm gonna lose sleep over that one person. And when we choose to focus on our critics, guess what it does? It steals from what God is doing in our lives. It steals from the other nine who said, You've, God's used you in my life. And so when we have critics, we have to learn to learn from our critics. To be, not have our pride be so big where we can't say, hey, you know what? Some of what you said is actually true. And I need to learn and God refined me through this. But we also can't focus on them where it distracts us from what God is calling us to. Can you imagine if David listened to his critics? Can you imagine if you listened to his brother that said, go back to the fields, go take care of the sheep, David. Can you imagine if you listened to King Saul? You're too young, David. There's no way you can defeat this giant. You see, in life, we're gonna face battles and we have to learn to be prepared for those battles to allow God to, to use the stale and mundane in our lives to get ready for those battles. And then when we get to that moment where God calls us to go, we've got to press through the opposition, the people in our lives that say, don't go. We've got to press through our own fear. And I believe we'll see some of the giants in our life fall. But there's something greater happening in this story. And I'd be amiss not to mention it. Because when you think about the Bible, you see, the Bible is, whether it's Old Testament or New Testament, the Bible has one single narrative. One, it all points to this one story. It all points to this one person, and his name is Jesus. And a lot of us, we have battles in our life. Some of you are facing a battle right now. It's called cancer. Some of you are facing a battle right now. It's called divorce. Some of you are facing a battle where you lost your job. You're searching for a job. Some of you are facing a battle called parenting. We all have these battles in our life. But when we look at the story of David and Goliath, man, if we think we're David, we're missing it. Because the truth is, is David is Jesus. 
because it doesn't matter who you are today. Myself, every single one of us, whether you're watching online or you're at one of our campuses, every single one of us has a giant in our life. It's the greatest giant. And you know what it's called? It's called our sin. And we created it because we disobeyed God. The Bible's clear on that. It says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And here's the problem. That giant, the wages of it is death, not just physical, but spiritual death. And it gets worse. I know, exciting, right? We can't beat that giant. We can try by living a good and a holy life. But that giant of our sin is too big and it's too strong for us to, to defeat. And so we're hopeless. But God, but Jesus came out of heaven and he came to this earth and he stared at our giant in the face and he said, you're going down because I'm gonna give up my life on the cross and I'm gonna shed my blood and my body's gonna be broken and on the third day, I'm gonna rise again. And guess what? Everybody's giant is gonna go crashing down. That's what Jesus did for us. And that's what this story points to. We aren't David, Jesus is David and he defeated the greatest giant we will ever face. And all you have to do is say yes to Jesus and your life will be changed for forever. But this morning, we wanna remember what Jesus did for us. As a Christian, man, when you think of the gospel, it should lead you to a place of thanksgiving and gratitude. When you recognize what Jesus did on your behalf, it should move us and motivate us. And today we remember that by taking communion. And communion is just, Really, it's for believers. It's people who have said, God, forgive me of my sins and lead my life. And it's a chance for us just to celebrate what God did for us, but it's also a chance for us to examine our lives, to say the giant's gone. I don't have to be a slave to sin anymore. I can walk in a new path. And so our band's gonna come out at all of our campuses and they're gonna lead us in a song. And I would just challenge you as the band comes out and sings this song, just take a moment of reflection to examine your life and say, God, where am I right now? What giant is haunting me? Am I allowing sin to consume me? And today will you change that? Because we wanna remember the sacrifice, the gospel of Jesus Christ that defeated our greatest giant.